Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, July 21st, 2021. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. So we talked about this a lot yesterday, but I thought maybe we want to talk a little bit more about it today, which was the uh, Jeff Bezos... um, Blue Origins 11-minute flight into near space yesterday. Um, and the peculiar response, not of like ordinary people, but of uh, the American liberal ruling class to Bezos's, to this, um, you know, to this space exploration, uh, which was... Uh, niggling, contemptuous, uh, full of loathing, um, and 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 a bizarre hostility to as though as though Bezos had done something wrong, you know, as though he had done something pernicious by spending his money on uh, on on this. And um, just uh, want to read a couple of quotes from uh, relevant politicians. Uh, Noah yesterday read out uh, Catherine Clark, the congressman from uh, Massachusetts, uh, saying, you know, Jeff Bezos needs to pay his fair share of taxes. So I then went and looked up uh, what Jeff Bezos paid in taxes. Uh, ProPublica somehow managed to secure his taxes. You may or may not remember. Uh, which is itself pretty uh, staggering and shocking that this that this could happen. Um, but uh, I'm sorry, I'm having a little trouble locating this. But he paid a billion from between 2006 and 2018. Jeff Bezos paid 1.4 billion dollars in taxes. Now maybe that's not enough for you, uh, or maybe that's not enough for Catherine Clark and various other. It seems like a lot of money. Am I am I am I mistaken in that? Did well, I get this the, wrong? Is that not a lot of money? The, the tweet that I enjoyed was uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez's favorite publication, The Jacobin, which which said billionaires like Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos, and Elon Musk are parasites. They are worse than socially useless, but they've got to justify their existence somehow. So, like five year olds, they're now pretending to be astronauts. So. I found the use of the word parasite kind of fascinating. I mean, those three guys, three or four guys among the four, among the group of them is, have created more jobs than, say, any democratic socialist organization in this country has created. So I, I but but again, it's as yeah. you say, it's a kind of a contempt for people spending their wealth on something that might potentially be socially useful down the line. They're not spending their wealth. I'm sorry. This is all a terrible misapprehension on the part of these class warriors exemplifying the worst aspects of class envy. They're not spending their wealth. These are corporations. They're, they're closely held, but they're operated as a corporate structure. It's not, and first of all, it's not, you could expropriate all this wealth that even if you could get Richard Branson's money, he's a British citizen, but they give away the game when they talk, look, there's some genuine concern about how entry level jobs in Amazon, uh, you know, work their employees. Um, which are which is a grueling job, as are all entry level positions, and you can have some concern about that. Um, but Amazon's Blue Origin is a division, so it's operated distinctly, uh, and they give away the game when they talk about Musk and Elon and uh, or Elon Musk and Branson and Bezos in the same sentence, because these are very different organizations. These are very different people with very different citizenship statuses. All they care about is the fact that they're not spending their money, allocating the resources the way they would prefer them to allocate resources, which is the story of time immemorial of all class warfare. It's not about what they're producing or not producing. It's about that they're not, that they don't have control over what's happening here. It is all about their lack of control and their frustration with it. Yeah. And what's great is that um, these figures get under their skin so much because they change the narrative that, 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 you know, uh, class warriors have been working on now for a decade or so, you know, it's, you know, all about how awful, um, wealthy people are. And, you know, these guys come along, excite everyone's imagination, do this great thing, you know, uh, get get press from, from everywhere 
Um, and it really undermines this larger story about the evils of capitalism and entrepreneurship and wealth. And it's not about what they could do with that money either. Because if they had an ounce of imagination among them, and I think they do, they can envision a very near-term future in which the kind of economic activity that's ongoing as a result of these new innovations, these new processes that they've developed, developed as a result of the government, by the way, getting out of the space business, getting out of the booster business. They well, can, they if want... they could envision that, if they could envision a, that future, all of that economic activity is taxable. All of it would produce more revenue than you could generate from expropriating all the wealth they have on their, on their persons right now. But okay. they don't see that. They don't want to see that. They don't want government to invest in the space program. They don't want government to spend tens of billions of dollars on NASA. The whole point of why all of this went private is that when the United States committed untold resources in the 1960s to the space program, it split the country in two. People did not think after Apollo 11 that this investment, public investment, was worth the opportunity cost. Uh, the country was hurting. There was there was economic stagnation. There were wage and price controls. Thing, people were not in good shape. And they looked at this and said, why are we doing this? Why is this happening? Public support for the space program collapsed after Apollo 11 because the government could not make a solid case as to why it was spending the public you know, purse on this matter anymore once the aim that had been announced by Kennedy, which was to land a man on the moon and bring him home safe, was achieved. And so even though we continued, there were the the, the shuttles and, you know, and again, some of these fantastic acts of exploration like the Hubble telescope and and these Mars missions and stuff like that, the public belief that space exploration was worth the public investment never recovered and so and so if if robert reich and everybody who was saying jeff bezos should pay his fair share oh look he's playing with toys in space and you know what alan shepard spent as much time in space in 1961 as bezos and uh, and branson did so right I mean, that happened 60 years ago, so who cares? I mean, that's also a that? very good, that's a good faith interpretation of where this comes from. There's a, a saying, <laughs> I don't know to whom this should be attributed, but I'm going to steal it anyway, is that both conservatives and progressives are nostalgic for their various uh, conceptions of the past. Conservatives are more nostalgic for uh, a period in which Americans lived in a particular social ethos, social milieu that conservatives prefer. Liberals are nostalgic for periods when they have power. Um, and that explains a little bit, I think, of a sentiment that we saw from people like Matt Miller, who's an MSNBC analyst, former um, spokesman for the Department of Justice under Barack Obama, I think, who said, quote, watching NASA take off when I was a kid was such a moment of national pride and unity. Having them replaced by billionaire vanity flights is one of the more depressing touchstones of this era. <laughs> so they did actually really like it when the space program existed circa 1961 to exactly January 20th, 1969. Okay, remember when Trump announced the Space Force and everybody said, oh, that's ridiculous? The word space is a joke? to liberals it's a parody to them they don't they don't look to the skies as a as a as a vehicle for human exploration and growth because they're not actually interested in in the growth of let's say uh, you know uh, the possibilities or, or or expanding the limits of human technological achievement they're interested in expanding the you know sort of social boundaries of, of humanity, but not this question of whether or not there's a universe in which we can uh, we can find ways to uh, transcend not not morally, not spiritually, but transcend the bonds of Earth and find new ways to enrich and and uh, and advance human possibility. That is not of any interest to them. This is this has become entirely a matter for optimists about human possibility and of course the ultimate truth about liberals and leftists over the last 20 years is that they have become pessimists about human possibility they believe we need to retard growth in order 
to save the planet from the evils of climate change. They believe we need to retard uh, developments that you know that that may that in fact tend to be less polluting rather than more advancements. And you know they don't like natural gas. Natural gas is a partial solution to the carbon to the carbon crisis in the atmosphere. Uh, they don't like that either because you know what? That maybe they'll be leaching into the groundwater, right? As opposed to saving the CO two from the atmosphere. It doesn't matter what the argument is. They don't like. Tech, they they are they have they have become technophobic. They don't believe that that technology and technological advancement can save us or improve us. They think it's only going to harm us. And ultimately, that is why there was this you know amazing headline in Rolling Stone. Again, I mean, not the Rolling Stone. Any who cares about Rolling Stone? But the headline in Rolling Stone greeting Br- Branson. Wa- uh, excuse me, greeting Bezos was. Jeff Bezos uses money to spew emissions directly into upper atmosphere during space trip. Really? I mean, that's how you, you know, it's fine to say, eh, who cares? It's another just to sort of like, you know, uh, granted, that's clickbait, but it's another to sort of like piss on it. You know, I mean. It, but this it, is a sophisticated yeah. opinion. I mean, like that's you're saying, what I'm you're saying. dismissing that's it as clickbait. But that that's illustrative of sort of the the prevailing sentiment, primarily on social media, which just rewards poison. But it is you know to be the sophisticated the sophisticated take here is that this is all just a vanity play and it's and a waste of resources. And I mean, the same take could have been written about the Otis elevator, right? When it was demonstrated by the inventor itself yeah. to demo to to show its efficacy, to show that it was safe, to show that. You know, mankind no longer had to walk up four flights of stairs. That was, you know, that was when mankind was really at its greatest, when we had to walk up four flight walk-ups. And, you know, the, the, the building could only be as high as the base of its, uh, uh, its foundation. That's the sort of thing that they're... So there is techno-pessimism there, true. But it's also like, you know, sometimes cynicism is confused with wisdom. There's also... Right. The, the, they also were poo-pooing the idea that space tourism might be something that in the future becomes uh, more common and more open to everyone, forgetting, of course, that's exactly what the history of commercial air flight has been in this country, right? You used to... You had to be really, really rich not that long ago in order to be able to fly across the country in a plane or fly anywhere in an airplane. And now it's, it's you know, it's still not super cheap, but it's something that's been totally democratized in through private enterprise and entrepreneurship and the fact that we now have competing airlines and deregulation of those airlines. So the idea that, that, you know, all these people who are poo-pooing space tourism are the people who benefit from the very system they're criticizing now that it's being applied to space. Uh, and I'm sure they're jumping on airplanes several times a year and going places they want to for a reasonable amount of money. So- I want to go back to the Matt Miller quote. Let me just uh, and then Abe ask you about this. So the Matt Miller quote is, oh, we used to have it was such a great, you know, now it's billionaire vanity, you know, stuff. So let's talk about Jeff Bezos as an American, okay? Born to a 17-year-old mother and a 19-year-old father. Mother marries a Cuban immigrant when she's four years old who adopts him. That Cuban immigrant, Mr. Bezos, gets himself an engineering degree, starts working for Exxon, moves from Texas to Florida, Jeff Bezos grows up in Florida, is a great, determined, dedicated student, becomes the valedictorian of his high school class in, I think, Hollywood, Florida. And at his high school, in his high school valedictory speech says, my goal is to colonize space. That was 1982. That was 39 years ago. And what happened to this guy? He was a great student at Princeton. He had competing job offers. He went to work on Wall Street. And then he had this idea for a retail business, selling books, right? Builds it into the most significant and important retailer of the 21st century. And where does his spirit and his mind and his thoughts and where does his emotions go to? This thing that he said in high school, <clears throat> That what he wanted to do was colonize space. He so wanted he's to a colonizer. Well, there you go. Right. Mm-hmm. But that and that that is that's where this is going to go tomorrow. You know, if this con- our argument continues. But you know, how this, is this not a matter of national pride? But this is the thing. Maybe I'm wrong, but 
it seems to me Richard Branson didn't get this degree of flack, right? There was, wasn't there more, he, they were more enthused by him. Um, I think a lot of this has to do with the, with the idea that America sucks. This is bad when Americans do it. When, 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 when Americans do it, it's obnoxious. It's, it's uh, egomaniacal. Yeah, we're 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 taking our eye off of our own real world problems to go out and do crazy things in space. So right. so I think it's it's much more offensive when an American forget American pride. It's like you know th- th- this is that that is the that is the great offense here. Richard Branson is like you know cuts this sexier adventurist uh, uh, figure. You know he's British. It's it's all it's 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 slightly a different thing. Well, look, Representative Mark Pocan uh, taking a break from uh, trashing Israel and supporting terrorism, uh, as he does routinely, and trying to, you know, uh, destroy the relationship between the U.S. and Israel, took took a moment to say this. 2.2 billion people don't have access to clean drinking water, but hooray, another billionaire just made it to the edge of space. So let's parse this out for a minute. So uh, I don't understand how uh, Jeff Bezos's making money by creating Amazon and becoming a billionaire uh, by selling goods in a better way than other retailers sell goods that would have sold anyway unless he had sold them to them has anything to do with potable water uh, elsewhere on the planet. But if anything might cure the potable water problem elsewhere on the planet, it is space innovation where you are, might be able to do things and, 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 and innovate things uh, in zero gravity, including, you know, methods of desalinization and stuff like that. Six month long trips. Yeah, that's the sort of right. But this is why you're not on Twitter anymore, Jonas, because you don't understand that non sequiturs are the coin of the realm. (laughs) This is literally how you get attention. Okay. And it is important for us to make this point before we move on, which is there was one person in American politics on the democratic side who did not indulge in this, uh, life denying nonsense and that was the president of the united states well via jensaki she said the president believes that this is a moment of american exceptionalism that was exactly the right thing to say it is uh this is a moment of national pride that it was private doesn't make it any less of a moment of national pride when when charles Lindbergh flew the atlantic uh, in a craft of his own design, you know, raising entrepreneurial money to do that. That was a moment of enormous national pride. That wasn't done by the government. Granted, that was 1927. Lindbergh turned into a into a very problematic figure afterward. But that doesn't matter. National pride doesn't require, you know, doesn't require a presidential signature or a congressional a congressional approval. Um, you know the the explosion of the, the 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 explosion of the United States and 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 the behavior of Americans who are let loose uh, by America's own ability to allow people to let themselves loose is a matter of national pride. And as I say, I think Biden did the right thing and at least muddied the kind of this loathsome nihilistic treatment of somebody who seems to be hated only because he's a wild success, which is not generally an American, you know, which, which is something that happens. You always hear people who say, I needed to leave Europe. I needed to leave Britain or I needed to leave France or because um, trying to make something of yourself in places like that is very difficult. Trying to transcend your circumstances is very difficult. You are who you are. You are who you were born to. You're in the class you were in. You're from the town you're from. And kind of like, if you have outsized ambitions and want to sort of try to paint the world red, you've got to go to America because you because it is the only place that in which you can do this kind of thing from a standing start without these shackles. And I think part of what you see here is a hunger to put the same kind of shackles on, on, on Americans because they shouldn't get out of their lane. They shouldn't get too fancy and they shouldn't, you know, and they shouldn't do things that uh, politicians who themselves have done nothing but get themselves elected to office, uh, don't want them to do. 
And so, you know, I, I know, I don't know if I like Jeff Bezos or not. I don't know. He's a complicated figure and all of that, but the notion that you would take this, this moment to sort of just express your dilettantish distaste for the kinds of things that, you know, have throughout history made the lives of human beings better is very telling. Uh, but you got it when you said compli- he's a complicated figure in, in the in the very polarized environment in which our elites battle uh, the American people for, for claims of moral superiority. You cannot have complicated figures. You have heroes and villains. And a, and a, a guy who's self-made billionaire who, you know, I agree, quite complicated, probably ask his ex-wife what she thinks of him and you'll have a very different portrait of Jeff Bezos. But Nowadays, the elite opinion makers have to say, look, if he's not a hero, if he's not a hero who falls in line ideologically and culturally with what we believe and promote what we believe or pay obeisance to those ideas, even if in reality he does whatever he wants, he's got to be a villain. So there, there really isn't that gray area where you could have these very complicated people who you could say, wow, this amazing person did this amazing thing. And they're also this flawed human being. Those days are long past, unfortunately, you know, for us. However, I do think most Americans are still able to understand that complexity in, in the real world. I mean, it is well, ominous, though. In the very near term future, there is going to be a very pronounced government role in regulating uh, this sector of the economy and trying to regularize commerce in this area. Uh, Congress is going to very soon be tasked with, uh, in my view, uh, though no one has even really begun to think about this, um, administering and um, providing property rights to uh, export and exploit resources orbiting the sun. And if this is the ethos that prevails, this progressive ethos, you get this industry that's not like Vanderbilt in his yacht, you know, completely unregulated and, and just innovating for the sake of innovation. You get the railroads. You're going to get cartelization, um, which is probably what progressives want. They want a cartel out of this sort of thing uh, in order to maintain, again, power. It has nothing to do with revenue. It has nothing to do with social responsibility. It is all about maintaining their grip on the development of this industry, guiding the development of this industry. And that will produce negative economic consequences for people who actually want to um, make a go of it in this industry. So, you know, these these three billionaires right now, um, to say nothing of Northrop Grumman and half a dozen other industries that are actually also in this business, but aren't, you know, big flashy individuals, um, then they become a cartel. So my, I want to disagree with you slightly because I think it's more likely that cartelization happens because uh, liberals are unserious about ensuring that competition governs this world. Because as you have three or four or five players in it, um, it is their interest to maximize their role. And it is, and therefore you have an outsized interest by the people in the field to control the field. Government, if it does things right, will say, we have no, we are not going to do anything to you know pull up short new entrants into this business we want as many people going into space or trying to futz around in space as possible in part to limit the cartelization of this new form of exploration and uh and they they're so foolish and stupid that what they will end up doing even if they want to limit bezos's power and musk's power is as happens constantly with regulatory capture and various other things they will end up enshrining it because they won't actually understand what le- what what acts of legislative what what competitive how to keep competition going which is actually to keep their hands off it because when they don't keep their hands off it uh they will freeze they will tend to write bills that freeze the moment Right? I mean, that's what happens. They freeze the current existing standards and imply and apply new regulatory frameworks that only the the people who are in the field at that moment can afford to um you know fulfill, uh, you know, and to comply with, to set up standards of compliance and systems of compliance and all that, which require hundreds of millions of dollars to satisfy 
uh, Congress's vainglorious efforts to make sure that things are fair and on an even basis and all of that. Whereas the best thing to do is to have it be the Wild West, is to kind of, you know, make sure that, you know, Atari is, is, Take you know Commodore sixty four takes over from Atari, which then is taken over by this one, which is then taken over by that one, which is what happens in genuine growth fields uh, when government keeps their hands off. And with that, uh, I want to talk to you about our friends at the Bonson Group, David Bonson, a great believer in technological in from in, you know innovation and 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 the kind of progress that that you can get from this, uh, the sorts of things that he invests in in his three billion dollar financial management and services firm. If you want to read David's analyses and his people's analyses of these kinds of trends, you need to subscribe to DividendCafe.com and the DCToday.com. DividendCafe.com, a weekly newsletter, the DCToday.com, obviously a daily newsletter released, uh, you know, in in the early evenings uh, that goes through what went on in the markets during the day and why and what we are to expect from the Fed and from Congress and the kind of policies that are being made and the sausage that is being made behind closed doors. Uh, it is revelatory stuff. At DividendCafe.com is more long-term macroeconomic analysis uh, on, on larger trends. Invaluable. DCToday.com, DividendCafe.com, from the Bonson Group, the antidote to the intellectual spaghetti of the financial services and management industry. Um, Abe, you... You're getting very frustrated on the COVID question because we're having this, we're in this circumstance in which the uh, in which the controllers want to reseize control, right? Noah, you're going to be writing about this today, so we'll talk about what it is, what is going on within the worlds of the uh, you know regulatory and emergency powers people. Um, but Abe, so basically to understand where we are with the Delta variant and with the surge in cases and all of that, you have one particular interest that is driving you crazy. Well, it's not that I'm just that I'm frustrated. I'm genuinely confused by a, a sort of new twist in this, which is um, these high profile, supposedly breakthrough infections. Um, I'm talking about like the Yankees, the New York Yankees who have had, I think given the, the sort of two separate outbreaks, uh, something like 15 or 16 uh, supposed uh, breakthrough cases of COVID uh, among reportedly vaccinated players. I'm talking about the Texas Democrats uh, who have had uh, their breakthrough cases. Five, that, five, five breakthrough cases on the plane. I think five and five. then spread them to the White House and uh, Nancy Pelosi staff, also presumably breakthrough cases because everyone at the White House is, is supposed to be uh, vaccinated. Um, so I'm genuinely confused. I, I, I understand and accept that there will be a tiny, there is, according to the data, a tiny percentage of actual breakthrough cases out there um, so when you hear of anyone anywhere, you can't sort of be shocked because that that is given the, the size of the uh, population that is vaccinated, um, there are, you are going to hear about breakthrough cases. Um, but these clusters, these high profile clusters of breakthrough cases, um, I don't know what to make of it in terms of the probability that you would uh, normally expect, given the, the 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 low percentage of of what's supposed to happen. Let me just read to you something from the Wall Street Journal three days ago. Okay, Advent Health, which manages forty one hospitals across seven largely midwestern and southern states, said about ninety seven percent of roughly. 12,700 COVID-19 patients treated this year were unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, meaning, you know, they had had one shot or something like that, which cannot be considered a breakthrough because, uh, you know, we don't. Okay. So yesterday, somebody in the government, I can't remember who, basically said that every case of hospitalization in the United States that we are aware of now 
uh, from that isn't isn't long term. Eighty three percent of the hospitalizations are from the Delta variant, and of those, pretty much a hundred percent are among the unvaccinated. We hear about breakthrough cases. They are not showing up among the people who are getting really sick or dying at all. So you know what I'm wondering? Who's really vaccinated? Really? 16 Yankees have breakthrough infections when nobody has breakthrough infections? Really? The five uh, people who are on the plane uh, wearing uh, unmasked on the plane uh, were vaccinated? Really? I mean, I, I think there were grounds for extreme skepticism about the breakthrough cases. The, well, look, the, we talk about vaccination hesitancy now as though it's a matter that afflicts only the great unwashed. Um, you know, the proletarian great masses on the right for whom the populists are, are very, you know, sensitive towards their their particular paranoias. And, um, you know, democratic constituencies, particularly African-Americans, and all of these people are supposedly not the, not the most educated, not the most affluent, what have you. That is not who we understood to be vaccine hesitant before this pandemic. The people who were vaccine hesitant before this pandemic were the affluent, were the educated. Um, Olu Kazan had a piece in 2014 illustrating this, which is probably still prevails today, which is vaccination rates in Los Angeles County were much higher in downscale areas in places with lower incomes than in upscale areas. Beverly Hills was a place where you would encounter somebody who was unlikely to be vaccinated more than you would in Watts. And that's the sort of thing that probably is the sentiment today. It's just not something that you're supposed to say in public. So like you say, John, like you're intimating, at least people are lying about this. Look, I think there's absolutely no question that people are lying about this. Uh, This, by the way, is one of the reasons I understand all of the civil libertarian arguments against the vaccine passport or the, you know, the Excelsior pass, which I have on my phone or whatever. I understand these are civil libertarian questions. They're all, it's all like the national identity card and stuff like that. But you can actually see now that there is an interesting social cost to not having, you know, to not being in a circumstance in which these people say, okay, well, I was vaccinated, you know, because it would be too incredibly embarrassing and shameful for them to admit that they're walking around unvaccinated and then they, they're all walking around unvaccinated you know, uh, giving each other, giving each other COVID. Um, they don't want to say that. And in case of the Yankees, they were supposedly not supposed to be able to play without vaccination. But if you walk into the clubhouse and you say, I've been vaccinated and no one's going to say, show me your vaccination card, or you got a fake vaccination card because you really don't want to be vaccinated. Cause you know, because you got half the information, whatever it is. And the whole thing about the uh, Beverly Hills thing you're talking about, of course, relates to the elite panic over autism and the belief that autism might be caused by vaccines, right? Which was supported by a, by a horrifically monstrous study published in The Lancet in 1998 by a doctor named Andrew Wakefield who has since gone to prison was 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 whatever what it is disbarred. I don't know what it is when you're a doctor and has gone to prison for his crimes, uh, literally creating false information that we're tw- almost 25 years later. People cannot get out of their heads. But Noah's right. It's and it's not just that though. It's also in keeping with like the anti-GMO sentiment. You know that you're not supposed to put chemicals into your body. That you're supposed to. You know everything is supposed to be organic and in, in keeping with with nature um that that has driven that has been that has driven a lot of sort of anti-scientific thought among the elite um uh and it's been very marketable um for ages i mean um you know all all, all sorts of um sort of um organic snake oil um has 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 been very popular for that reason because there is this idea that you're not supposed to uh put chemicals in your body I, I need to correct myself. Wakefield was not has not served any time uh, served any time in prison, so I just uh, I got that wrong. Anyway, um, 
but yeah, no, I mean, this is a real, this is a, there's a whole set of thinking in, in this regard um, that is elite. And then you add to that kind of a general, I don't know what you would call it, like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the term for it, commoditization of this kind of stuff, where there are people with a vested interest in selling you natural supplements and this and that and the other thing, all of which they say, look, don't. Don't trust doctors. Don't believe the kind of stuff that they're handing you. That's all the medical establishment. I'm going to give you this. It's called, you know, it's called uh, Tannis Root, and it's really fantastic. And if you take Tannis Root, of course, as you may remember, you end up having the devil's baby because that's what that's what they give Rosemary, <laughs> Rosemary's baby. <laughs> one one point on the breakthrough cases, though, that I think is is uh, indicative of what we were talking about earlier this week with regard to zero COVID being the baseline for a lot of people and this, you know, constant safety culture being made permanent. Um, we actually, the narrative is quite positive about vaccination, even with the breakthrough cases, because what, what the vaccinations should do is prevent you from losing your life or having to be hospitalized. And that's the case. These cases are mild. And quite frankly, the only evidence that we have for those Texas Democrats who, besides having a, a PR debacle by coming to DC and calling themselves brave heroes and then infecting, you know, half of Capitol Hill is that the cases so far, at least what, what has been reported so far that spread were mild, suggesting that at least the people they infected were vaccinated and so had a pretty mild symptom. So that's good. And, and I think it is a, it's unfortunate that the media in particular can't tell that story that way. They're just not, they're, they're not there yet. Um, but that is the story. The story shouldn't be, oh, my God, this variant's going to kill us all. We're going to have to keep everything closed. We have to go back to lockdown, back to masking. It should be, you know what? This was expected. And the cases, thank goodness, are mild. Um, mm-hmm. Holman Jenkins puts it this way today in the Wall Street Journal. I'm not going to quote him. I'm going to paraphrase him. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to get COVID. I don't know when. Doesn't know what the schedule is. If you're not vaccinated, you're going to get COVID. If you're lucky... By the time you get COVID, you'll get the Delta variant. It's weaker. It won't it won't make you as sick. And if perchance there are breakthroughs and you are vaccinated, uh, it it will feel like a cold. You know, overwhelmingly it seems to feel like a cold. Uh, or maybe you have a there's a breakthrough because you have really severe health conditions that have caused your immunity level to plunge even despite, you know, the fact that you're, you're vaccinated. Um, So we're now at a point where you're either going to get COVID or you're going to be vaccinated. And then the only people that we have to, we have to worry about are twofold. One is Teenagers between the ages of 12 and 18 who are, 12, who are now eligible for the vaccine but have parents who may not want to give it to them. And kids between 0 and 12 who are not yet eligible for the vaccine. But uh, I was wrong yesterday when I said that we don't have uh, numbers on the age of kids uh, who get covid um, because in fact, uh, uh, a, a very, uh, helpful, uh, listener, Nathan, uh, sent me just that data from the, from the CDC, which I was myself unable to find cause I'm an idiot. Uh, and we actually have, uh, total deaths by age in the United States of all causes and then deaths by age from COVID. So, um, tragically, uh, the, you're far more likely to get COVID and die uh, if you're under the age of one. But apparently, you're under the age of one, you are vastly more likely to die than at any other age, which is something I didn't really realize. But I guess that means like severely, you know, supremes and stuff like that. Total number of deaths of Americans under the age of one. Uh, Data as of 7 13 2021, uh, 15,557. COVID deaths 49. Uh, age of one to two, 1,091 total deaths, 13 deaths from COVID. Okay, now here we go. 
So that's obviously pretty much the same set of circumstances. Under the age of two, your health is very compromised, potentially very compromised. Although, again, we're talking about 5 million births. That's 10 million altogether. That's 10 million babies. Uh, And there were, of 10 million babies, there were 62 COVID deaths. Now, so each age I'm now mentioning is about 5 million, 4.75 million or something like that people born, okay? Uh, Age three, age two, two to three, three deaths, three to four, three deaths, four to five, four deaths, five to six, seven deaths, six to seven, two deaths, seven to eight, five deaths, eight to nine, five deaths, nine to 10, six deaths, 10 to 11, five deaths, 11 to 12, six out of 5 million, 12 to 13, 12 out of 5 million, 13 to 14, 10 out of 5 million, and uh, 14 to 15, six out of 5 million, 15 to 16, 15 out of 5 million, 16 to 17, 14 out of 5 million, 17 to 18, 26 out of 5 million. So uh, I'm not saying no one's dying of COVID, but 336 deaths out of 75 million people, you do the percentages. So you're either going to get COVID or you're going to get vaccinated or you're going to be a kid and it's not going to affect you. Even if the the ARP says everyone under uh, everyone over the age of two should be masked. So, Noah, you know that they're looking at these numbers in the administration. You know that the Biden administration does not want to look like it's losing the war in COVID. And so you have noted that uh, a house the House is divided against itself. Yeah, well, I mean, it's 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 perhaps a little bit more than that because I don't think Anthony Fauci, for example, has any allegiance to anyone other than Anthony Fauci. Um, and Vivek Murthy, I'm the Surgeon General. I'm not sure who he speaks for, save his his um, department, because they do seem to be going against the administration's preferred narrative on this sort of thing, as expressed by the CDC, particularly when it comes to masking. Um, <clears throat> the return of mask mandates in Los Angeles County, for example, was applauded by Vivek Murthy. Um, yesterday, Anthony Fauci came out and said that you know American schools should defer to the uh, American Pediatric Association. Is that it? Um, which recommended masking. American indoors. Academy of Pediatrics. American Academy of Pediatrics. Yeah. Thank you. Um, which recommended that all individuals uh, over the age of two mask up regardless of their vaccination status in indoor settings, particularly in schools and elsewhere. Um, and all this cuts against CDC guidelines. So it strikes me um, more as an effort to a public pressure campaign to force the administration to backtrack on masking. Uh, and it is the administration saying, don't listen to the administration, because these are all members of the administration, um, which in a normal universe, the press would recognize as uh, something more like a crisis of confidence in the administration's own handling of this crisis with, from within the administration. That's the sort of thing that cannot be said until after the fact. We'll have a 20th party Congress when we can all talk about this sort of thing with clarity uh, of hindsight and no political consequences. But that's what they're doing. What they're doing is trying to force the CDC to backtrack. And it's going to be a spectacular failure. I think the CDC will eventually backtrack. I think the CDC will attempt to reimpose mask mandates and the bluest of the blue states will follow suit. Um, but there's no enforcement mechanism for this sort of thing. Um, Los Angeles County's first sheriff, for example, very uh, publicly said that this was nonsense. We're not going to devote one resource to this and the city should adopt a, 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 a policy that actually comports with the science. Um, very pointed criticism. Um, but this will have the the precise effect of forcing vaccinated people back into masks, into the areas where they feel comfortable, masked up. And it will create pockets of non-compliance where unvaccinated people will gather with more unvaccinated people, unmasked, sharing their variants and doing precisely the opposite of what we were supposed to be doing here, which is enjoying the benefits of herd immunity. The intermingling of these groups 
where there's a very limited chance of transmission because there's fewer and fewer vectors for transmission among vaccinated people. If you segregate these populations, you'll get more infections. Um, there's something else that the new mass mandates is going to do, which is create a whole new wave of stories about fights over masks in stores and restaurants and, um, you know, the sort of unruly, uh, 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 you know, sort of uh, uh, maniacs who are trying to put everyone's life in danger uh, who refuse to wear the mask because because this time it's going to there, there is going to be there are going to be so many more uh, people who are just not going to abide this. I mean, there'll be a lot of that because there will be, you know, local media outlets that camp out in front of Whole Foods, but they're not camping out in front of a key because they'll never see that. They'll never see that population and they don't want to see that population. They really want to be segregated from these people and they'll have that opportunity. We'll see. We'll see what people, you know, again, you're going to have the circumstance in which sort of like a students, you know, sort of people who do what they're told and do right and do well in life and all that will follow the rules if the rules change or, and they will, you know, the, that's, that's who will, you know, put on masks and they will be doing so for no good reason. Uh, and that's the real question. Do, do, does the Biden administration want to make people do things for no good reason uh, to satisfy some theoretical uh, constituency uh, that is part of their, you know, coalition that that is consumed with the idea that uh, we are unsafe and that everything is, is unsafe. This is the defining tension of the Biden administration from the campaign onward, and it goes back to the space conversation when they said. Um, Look, Jay, this moment is an, a, a moment of national pride. This is an example of American exceptionalism. That was the administration doing what it did to get in the White House, which is take what progressive Twitter says and say the opposite. It works every time. It's, 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 it's a foolproof strategy. You cannot mess it up. But when it comes to COVID, when it comes to race relations, they've been unable to follow that method. Uh, so, and I suspect that they'll be unable to follow it in this case too, but the, the, the success rate that that strategy has is phenomenal. And I don't know why they can't just, just abide by their past record as indicative of future results. Well, they're, they're taking more of the progressive Twitter positions with each passing month, right? I mean, someone was joking that like, this is a great midterm election strategy. Tell parents, many of whom haven't had kids in school, uh, you know, for, for a full year, that not only will your vaccinated kid have to now wear a mask, but, you know, while listening to critical race theory, indoctrinating them. And, you know, I mean, they, they went through the whole list, but actually all of the stuff they listed in that joke was stuff that the Biden administration has either uh, vocally or subtly through its executive uh, actions embraced well look if you don't want to go outside in your mask sit inside at home getting massage and heat and cooling therapy from the x chair because you know some of us are getting back to the office some of us find ourselves in a new normal normal at home and some of us just don't want to deal with all of this so we're going to stay home if we can in our x chair or sit in our x chair at the office with its newest innovation lmax temperature regulation taking your seating comfort to a whole new level. Patent pending Elamax allows you to experience cooling heat and massage in your low back. Feeling a bit warm this summer? Set your Elamax to cooling. Air conditioning in your office cranked up too high? Set your Elamax to heating. Feeling stressed from too many Zoom calls? Turn on Elamax massage therapy and relax. Exter's patented dynamic variable lumbar support was already best in class. Now with Elamax, your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. There's never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of X-Chair. Go to xchaircommentary.com now. That's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your order. X-Chair has a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWheels for free X-Wheel Bladecasters xchaircommentary.com. Hey, Noah, you know, you're talking about this, do the opposite of the Twitter strategy. 
And you know who is doing that? Eric Adams. Eric Adams, the uh, now you know overwhelming favorite to be the mayor of New York City, running against Curtis Sliwa in the mayoral race, where he will likely get seventy-five percent of the vote. Uh, sat down with uh, Commentary's own Brett Stevens, contributing editor Brett Stevens, uh, and basically uh, sounded uh, a little like a neocon. Uh, Brett's column says uh, Eric Adams is going to save New York City. Um, and I uh, spent an hour with him. And, um, uh, you know, he basically says, you know, uh, this stuff can unravel so quickly, talking about um, uh, public order, public safety, uh, and says his mission is to not to let New York go the way of Portland or San Francisco. Okay. Uh, And this is Brett. The key is the police. In 2019, multiple videos went viral of police officers offering no response after being doused by hecklers with buckets of water. When I saw that, I said, we're going to lose the city, he recalls. When you attacked that officer, you didn't attack that individual. You attacked the symbol of safety. Um, And uh, after rebuking certain progressives for their views on New York's finest, he turns to their views on New York's richest. 65,000 families pay 51% of our income taxes, Adam says. Those income taxes are going to the police, the teachers, the Department of Sanitation. We have people who say, who cares whether the rich leave? You better connect the dots. I care. Um, so Eric Adams uh, is following this strategy 125,000%. There's a profound <clears throat> opening here for the Republican party, if it managed to get its act together when it comes to social issues and its own profound crippling sense of grievance and persecution, uh, if it were to get over that, because all the polling data that we see suggests that all this stuff that's, that's preferred by rich white liberals is really not by African-Americans for whom they presume to speak. Um, we see a lot of this in election results. We see a lot of it in polling data, but it's actionable. It's a, it's a, it's a method for peeling off maybe 10% of this voting block, which makes all the difference in the world in elections. Um, John, you sent out a poll yesterday, uh, today to us from Gallup, which is profoundly disappointing, um, which suggests that American race relations have reached a pretty much a, a low that, isn't been duplicated in the history of Gallup's polling. They've been polling this question for several decades. Uh, and the, it, it sort of flipped on its head in 2013. And what happened in 2012? And I put a lot of blame at the foot of the Obama administration because Obama administ- the Obama administration's re-election campaign was nakedly, cynically, racially aggressive. An attempt to gin up racial hostility, racial contretemps, to brand Mitt Romney and the Republicans around him racist. Um, hostile to the 13th Amendment and other such nonsense. And then in 2013, a series of complex social forces began to produce the kind of safetyism that we see migrate off campus and into the American workplace, um, which places race relations as sort of a framework in which you can understand all of human history, at least all of American history. Um, But it began really with this very academic appeal to this kind of sentiment. And, and, pull it, and turn it into something weaponized politically by the Obama administration. And it's never gone back. It's never gotten better. It's only gotten worse. Um, and it's politically valuable for certain um, politicians, particularly Democratic politicians, to exacerbate racial tensions. And there's a hunger out there for somebody who doesn't want to do that. Be it on the left, be it on the right, there's somebody who doesn't want to weaponize grievance. And that would be really beneficial for whatever po- political coalition organizes around that person. We have a lot of evidence in Joe Biden that it was that that Joe Biden was that guy, but he's being pulled in a bunch of different directions. Eric Adams is intimating that, but Republicans could really take advantage of this opportunity too if they had somebody clever enough to do it. Well, I mean, it's all this question of results. Ultimately, uh Biden will 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 rise or fall based on results. Eric Adams will rise and fall based on results. The rubber meets the road. How he handles COVID, how the economic recovery happens, what happens with his 
with his plans. And the jury's out on a lot of this. There still remains this question of whether or not the, uh, I don't think it's really that much of a question, but whether or not the unemployment benefit extension has actually harmed the U.S. economy by by creating this labor shortage, where you are, you have competition between staying at home and going to work because you could make $15 an hour staying home uh, and all of that. And, and Eric Adams is in very much in the same position where he's going to have to show that he can make New York a better place than it was under Bill de Blasio. Uh, now, here's uh, I want to go to polling. You mentioned the Gallup polling on, on, on race. I want to talk a little bit more about general polling on these matters and how it helps us. But before I do that, I need to talk to you about Bambi. Uh, you know, because when running a business, HR issues can kill you. Uh, HR compliance concern, the HR compliance concerns many small business owners have are, what are the meal and break requirements I must provide employees? How do I handle an employee that doesn't show up to work? Can I dock an exempt employee's pay? Do I have to accommodate an employee who can't do his job? What documents do new hires have to complete? What do I have to do? How do I know if I have to follow any new employment law changes? Bambi helps. It is, it is a dedicated HR manager firm that helps craft HR policy, maintains your compliance, all for just $99 a month. Bambi, spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business to change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength with a dedicated HR manager available by phone, uh, email, or real-time chat, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. Let Bambi help get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash commentary right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash commentary, spelled BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash commentary. Um, okay, so here was what I wanted to bring up. Uh, 538 has an interesting uh, piece today about how Joe Biden's approval ratings are good, but they're actually in the low range of, you know, presidents at this time. They're low, low to medium range. He's doing fine, but he's not doing overwhelmingly well and all of that. And then I read this, and then I think about what we talked about a couple of days ago, which are these two surveys of the, the sort of polling autopsies from 2020 and the findings that are un- that are unassailable now that polling broke in 2020 and that uh, the polling at the state level and at the federal level was four to five points off and all in one direction. It wasn't just off, like in some states it favored Democrats, in some states it favored Republicans. All evidence suggested uh, an oversampling or whatever, overreporting of Democratic partisan political positions uh, that were not reflected in the election results everywhere. And at the state level, Democrat political, Republican Democratic political results in Senate races, and of course, Trump federally, who who did four points better than the final polling showed that he was going to do. Okay, here's what I want to bring up. So Joe Biden, it says Joe Biden is like at the low end range. How has polling been fixed? Uh, why, why aren't these the same numbers as before? Are the pollsters looking at this and adjusting their polling, like ratcheting it down four or five points to take account of the fact that they can't get Republicans to answer anything or partisan conservatives to answer anything? And so the data that they're getting are skewed wildly toward the Democrat. Are they, I don't think they're correcting for it. And therefore there are two possibilities then with these numbers showing Biden having a pretty good approval rating. Uh, and uh, approval ratings that are pretty good for things like Biden's infrastructure package or some of the proposals that are in the gigantic spending bill, which are either uh, the polling is being used as a PR method to convince uh, the public and reporters and stuff like that to cover these things as though they're really popular for obvious uh, political benefit, or they're kidding themselves. They're drinking their own Kool-Aid. They're living inside their own bubble. They think that all this stuff is popular. And guess what's going to happen? They are going to be beaten. They have their lives beaten out of them when they have to confront reality in the form of voters who are going to judge the results that I just talked about. You know what's an interesting data point for that is the uh, the child care credit. You know the ta- the money that people are now seeing. Um, 
thanks to the relief package appear in their in their uh, bank accounts, thanks to Biden and you know his checks. When you ask people whether they like it, most people say, yeah, this is great. I mean, who's going to say no to some money in the bank? But if you ask them if it should be made permanent, which of course is for many Democrats the goal here, most Americans say no. They see this as a temper. They want the temporary money in their bank account, but they have a sense that making this permanent is a will just pass off the the payment later to them through higher taxes, which they are correct to assume. So I think I wonder if how much of this is also uh, an effort by the Biden administration to to boost their own programs without having to think about Americans who will in fact see these as not long-term good financial strategy for the country. I will also say if this, if this polling data is, is still, you know, bending towards uh, Democrats, it's really bad news for Kamala Harris, whose numbers are far lower than, or, or much lower than, uh, than Biden's and, and who is just not a very popular politician in this country. Yeah. On the one side, they say everything we want to do is really popular <clears throat> and everybody loves us. And on the other side, they say we're going to get whacked in 2022. So we got to do all this right away. And those two things seem to be mutually exclusive unless they don't believe one of them. And presumably they do believe that they're going to get beaten in 2022, but only because of the dynamics of a midterm election, which favor idiots because all the idiots turn out and all the smart people don't. And that's what they really want to think and really want to say, because I think they genuinely do believe, do believe their agenda is extremely popular. Okay. But I'm sorry, but there have been articles all week, Washington Post, New York Post, other places how, about how Democrats are really in the poll position in the Senate races in 2022. Now, it is true that Republicans are defending more turf than Democrats are. That that is that is inarguable, and uh, there are like uh, probably going to be races in Wisconsin because I think Ron Johnson probably isn't going to run, and there are a couple of other states where there might be races where uh, where. Uh, Republicans are you know uh, Pennsylvania where uh, where. Um, uh, Pat Toomey is retiring, and that could be problematic. And Rob Portman in Ohio, and that could be pro- whatever. Okay, fine. Um, but you know, every time they publish this, oh boy, we're in really good shape. This is really fantastic. Look, and we're doing our fundraising is good. Really, we're really ahead of them. And the Republicans seem like they're divided and all of that. And you know, they have this weakness for believing their own press releases and for having journalists publish press release-like coverage of these things every single time there is a Republican wave, even in 94. In 1994, when when the Republican generic ballot saying if you were you're going to vote for the Republican or the Democrat uh, in, in, the, in the November election, that ballot was hitting plus 16 for Republicans. Plus 16. And it was like... I don't know. I think we're going to limit the losing 30 seats. Really, we're not going to Senate races are going to be really close. Blah, 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 blah. They can't not swallow their own Kool-Aid. And now they have this particular problem, which is I'm talking about, which is that the kind of social science supposed factual or hard analysis that will is supposed to tell them how they are and where they are may be lying to them. And giving them false hope or giving them a false understanding of how people feel about what they're doing. And I think that that is reflected in the absolutely solid Republican refusal to bend in any way, shape, or form toward the Democratic agenda. If it were really that popular, Republican senators would have more trouble. Uh, Granted, I know there are states where Republicans are just, you know, there are no Democrats and all this. If this stuff were really that popular... As infrastructure spending, as the stuff that was pulled out to do infrastructure spending, really does seem to be, you know, bipartisanly popular, Republicans wouldn't be so aggressively negative about it. I'm sorry. Like that, you know, they they would be more careful. So Mitch McConnell said a weird thing. I know we're going long here and I don't have, this is a complete, you know, I don't have a conclusion for this statement, but he said a weird thing today or yesterday where he suggested that um, Democrats should lump the uh, debt ceiling uh, hike that is necessary either at the end of August or in September uh, into the reconciliation package, uh, which is weird because that sort of has to happen. And I'm not under the impression that this reconciliation package is is much is is much is as likely as the media and the Democrats seem to think it will be. 
to to pass. So why would you say something like that unless you think it's it's a done deal? I know it's a good question. Or he thinks there's going to be a second reconciliation. I mean, at some point there has to be a budget reconciliation package. If this one, if the, well, if the, ridic- like if the ridiculous resolution. one. Right, a continuing resolution, right. I, I have no idea. I don't understand. The, the gamesmanship that is going on, by the way, in the Senate with Chuck Schumer calling votes and this and that and the other thing. I mean, I, I've been I've been sort of like an amateur student of this stuff for 30 years. I have no idea what's going on. I don't understand it. So I asked Matt Continetti, uh, who is uh, much savvier about this stuff than I am. I'm like, I'm stupid. I really don't understand this. And basically he said, it's a test. Schumer's a test. And I'm like, okay, but a test of what? I don't understand. I don't understand what is it a test of. And Matt said, he has to make it seem, Schumer meaning, he has to make it seem as though there's a hard deadline to test whether a deal is possible. Uh, okay, so if that's the case, then I still don't understand what he's doing because does anybody actually believe there's a hard deadline? I think Matt's right. Either this means Schumer's not really very good at this, which is possible. He's only been Senate Majority Leader for for six months. We have no idea how skilled he is at it. I mean, we know how skilled McConnell was and is and how skilled Harry Reid was and how skilled uh, you know various people have been at that job. We don't know that Schumer's any good at this, and and so he may be playing. And now McConnell may be just trying to screw with his head, which I think is likely what what McConnell is up to. But he's also screwing with my head uh, and your head and everybody else's head. And so, welcome to you know this is why a lot of this stuff is supposed to happen behind closed doors because <laughs> the public messaging stuff is uh you know it takes it to a level where the disingenuousness just is impossible to untangle you know or disentangle from from reality and with that uh as we are going along i will call a halt to these proceedings and we will join you again tomorrow for christine noah and Ava, john Podhoritz, keep the candle burning